pleasure to do. My man, the man who's been on the show now, I think on the third time, big time director, film director, Billy Corbin now joining us. Billy, what's up, my man? How you doing? Third time's a charm. <laughs> and you hopefully know, so this funny, will be a I, good one. <laughs> I sucked the first two times, but hopefully nah, this will be good. Nah, man, don't say that. You, you, you did better than me the first two times. <laughs> well, I don't know and if I can talk. talk. That's the thing. This is this is the thing about sequels, dude. They're never as good as the original. I, I well, it, it depends. It depends on what you're making, though. It really depends on it. it rarely you see part two or part three better than part one nowadays. But nowadays, that's true. absolutely. I mean, you've got uh, Godfather two. You've got Superman two. Is pretty mm-hmm. solid. Right. Um, the Raid 2 recently was pretty good. Um, but no, usually you don't have sequels that are better than the original, which is a great segue into our topic of conversation. <laughs> hey, man, first and foremost, we just greatly appreciate you coming on and showing us support and love. And, you know, every time we get a chance to have you on, it, it, it's always great. And for you to spend some time with us tonight, I know you're a busy guy. you got a whole bunch of things going on. But, uh, again, man, we thank you and appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm actually sitting here right now in the editing room, so any sound that you hear in the background of this conversation is coming from the U Part Two. So this is this is as close to a sneak preview as anybody will get. Is <laughs> over is overhearing the sound. There you go. Oh, I heard it. <laughs> so now people can hear exclusive sounds from the U Part Two <laughs> two months before. Right. Right? <laughs> Listen, I hope I don't get in trouble with ESPN, but this is exclusive. Ah. This is exclusive background audio sneak peek. <laughs> oh man, Billy, you're you're a funny guy, man. Um, I'm gonna start like this. I, I I'm gonna get to the U part two in about ten minutes, but I want to throw some random stuff at you. But first, the last time we had you on, we had you on for Tanny of America, and before that, it was broke. So now, if I, if I'm not mistaken, the U part two is now your first documentary for ESPN since broke, right? Uh, actually, we did a 30 for 30 short in between. Okay. Uh, online, they have a great series, um, usually launched through Grantland, um, but also okay. on ESPN.com called 30 for 30 shorts. They've got a bunch of them. They're great. and uh, So they're streaming online only. And we did a 14-minute uh, short 30 for 30 about, uh, it's called Collision Course, the murder of Don Aronow, and it's about the murder. This guy, Don Aronow, was like, I mean, he was just like the, the Steve Jobs of the mm-hmm. offshore race boat industry. This is a guy who was a champion uh, race boat uh, uh, driver, uh, but also later he invented and built every kind of boat, every brand of boat, I should say, that we even know today. Gonzi, cigarette, formula. He invented those brands and, and built a better, faster boat. And if you're building fast boats in Miami in the 70s and 80s, your clientele was significantly made up of drug smugglers down here in that era. So you had a sport. This was a professional, legitimate, televised sporting event, offshore boat racing, that almost 50% of the champions in that sport were drug smugglers uh, through, through like the 80s and, and 90s. And Don Aronow uh, also got a contract with U.S. Customs to build a boat called Blue Thunder that was supposed to help them catch the drug smugglers uh, on the water. And so here was a guy who was building boats that were the favorite smuggling boat uh, for, drug, for drug traffickers and now had a contract with the federal government because he was very tight with uh, George Bush, former president, uh, former, uh, I should say, uh, head of the CIA, turned vice president at that time. He gets this contract, and now he's building boats for both sides uh, of this cat and mouse game. And uh, so he gets murdered in front of his own boat factory, uh, and it turned into this big, uh, big murder mystery down here. I mean, that, that, this was like if Donald Trump was shot in front of like Trump Tower. You know, like this is how big this news story was in Miami in the in '87. And so we did a a really interesting, I think, uh, a short about about uh, the influence of drugs in that in that sport and the the murder mystery of of this guy. And so we did the U Part Two. I'm sorry, we did the U Part One 
Uh, then we did Broke, then we did Collision Course, and now the U Part 2. Okay, so now we had you on, I believe, sometime earlier in the year, February, if I'm not mistaken, to, to discuss Tanny of America. Now, we haven't had you on since then, but I want to get, uh, before we get to the U Part 2, what was the feedback like? Because now Tanny of America was a four-part miniseries on VH1, and I want to f- ask you, what was the feedback like from that? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on, on to talk about that. I remember I was in New York. I think we were finishing the right. the miniseries while while I was talking to you, and, and uh, uh, it was a very stressful time just trying to get – in fact, I posted a picture to Instagram. Uh, so, the, so the Tanning of America, One Nation Under Hip Hop, a VH1 rock doc, four-hour miniseries. So they premiered it uh, each episode of the four, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So mm-hmm. – we Monday night when it when part one premieres, I actually this is on my Instagram. You can go back to February and find this. I did a I did I did a split screen with two pictures. One picture was us watching part one premiering live on VH1, and the other picture was of David Sipkin, our, our co-producer and editor, editing part three of Tanning that was premiering two days later. <laughs> so it was a it was an intense week and and uh, and I appreciated you, you inviting me on to talk about that movie because the movie it got a lot of love from a lot of great people um, but it also kind of flew under the radar uh, unfortunately because I thought it was a, a really cool piece I thought it was an entertaining piece I thought it was an informative piece uh, we were really proud of it we got to talk to a lot of really interesting people that we interviewed, Dr. Dre, Norman Lear, Mariah Carey, uh, Diddy, who I think gave one of his more thoughtful and and unguarded uh, interviews in the piece. We talked to, uh, 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 of course, Steve Stout, whose book, The Tanning of America, it was based uh, on, uh, and it was the, the premise, as you know, for people who don't, it was about the this theory of Stout's that, uh, hip hop uh, has been the, one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, cultural forces in America of the last 30 years, and and led directly its influence, I should say, led directly to the election of the first black president, uh, which is a pretty bold thesis, and I think we we set about proving it very uh, convincingly uh, in the piece. But it premiered at 11 p.m. Uh, each night, which I think was a bummer because it was. You know, beyond prime time at that point, um, and, right. uh, and 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 here's actually most of the negative feedback. I'll give you the rundown very quickly. It's easy. It was uh, no, not enough Tupac, not enough Southern rap, which I totally agree with. I'm from Miami, you know, so I, mm-hmm. I know, um, you know, so like we didn't really cover, uh, uh, you know, Dirty South, the Two Live Crew, Master P. We didn't do any of that stuff that I would have liked to have done. It was a time issue. We could have done. 12 episodes of the Tanning of America. Uh, and, and Tupac uh, was, I think, uh, has been covered really beautifully in a lot of great documentaries. And, and this was definitely a little bit New York-centric because it was advertising-centric. It was, you know, it was a Wall Street-centric. So it was definitely uh, more of a New York hip-hop kind of a piece, uh, East Coast, for sure. Um, those were the only two real complaints about the content we got. Most of the complaints were about what I was just talking about before, which was the the time slot, the programming. Because folks were like, you know, yo, you put this ratchet TV on in prime time. <laughs> you know, like you got you got you got basket basketball bastard babies or whatever the hell it is at like nine to ten. Basically, you know, VH one prime time sort of gleefully it celebrates African-American stereotypes, like negative African-American stereotypes. And now all of a sudden they've got this really, I think, beautiful, uh, beautifully kind of thoughtful, uh, put together, well put together piece that celebrates African-American culture and they bury it at 11 p.m. <laughs> like it, it really, it really, the kind of show that kids should see in school. You know, to really get a sense exactly. of American, American pop cultural and American you know, race relations kind of history, and and that was the biggest bummer. And then what happens is, you know, Rock Docs 
produced some great work over 12 or 13 years. There were some uh, 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 Brad Abramson, Steve Mintz, these great executives at VH1 that, that really elevated the content level at VH1. And within months after Tanning of America, they fired everybody in the division. And like wow. 12, 13 people lost their jobs. And that was the end of, that was the end of Rock Docs. So Tanning turned out to be one of the last rock docs that, that VH1 ever, ever aired. And now they've got dating naked and alone and afraid, uh, Bigfoot challenge, whatever the hell they got on there right now. So. <laughs> you know what's so funny, Billy? I don't watch VH1 at all, but I think that was the, fir- <laughs> that was the first and probably last time, the last nine months that I saw VH1. Your thing was on it, and I haven't clicked that since. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't really have any – it's nothing personal. It was just kind of a, a bummer. We were all kind of disappointed. We had, a, we had a cool, like, you know, digital billboard in Times Square that was promoting the piece. But there wasn't a single – you Google – there was not a single review of that show, of that series, in any uh, – in, in advance, you know, in any mainstream media or even alternative blog. I, I mean, it, it was – it, it kind of like, and we all went through, when I say we all, I don't just mean us at Rack and Tour at our company in Miami Beach, but the folks at VH1 worked their asses off with us on this project. Mm. And this was, a, this was a big project, four hours, a lot of big stars. We shot all over the country. There was a ton of really cool footage you know, that, that, that was very difficult to obtain, very difficult to, to license. There was like 60 licensed songs in the like this is a big production that everybody worked really hard on and then it seemed to kind of like disappeared you know like we we all watched it and then it was like over you know and and Mm -hmm. i i we we really believed very strongly in the piece we really thought it was going to live on you know like it was going to have a shelf life it was going to become a part of of american cultural history not the movie itself but the story that it told i we thought was important you know i'm 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 not trying to be like, you know, melodramatic or toot my own horn. I just feel like uh-huh. the content was important. It was like it was about something meaningful and something important. And, you know, I, it's like it's the, if a tree falls in the forest and, the, and there's no mm. one around, does it, does it make a sound? And, and I know that people saw tanning. I know that people like tanning. But did it make a sound? I mean, probably not. Well, if it's any consolation prize, I loved it. My, my brother loved it, even to a point where my mother was watching it with us, and she was like, you know, she'll be doing her own thing on the side, and she was like, well, yeah, I know Dr. Dre, I know Snoop, I know them guys, and then like she'll go back, to, <laughs> she'll go back to what she was doing. But even just the, even at at her age, for her to notice who the, who these guys are, and she'd be like, oh wow, I haven't seen them on. TV such a long time, they're getting older and wow, and like she she kind of knew more of the older days that you were portraying, but she not she wasn't really a fan of like the rap music of you know that 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 I grew up in '90s early 2000s. But for someone like her to really understand and notice what you were portraying, I think that speaks high volumes too, man. Well, I appreciate that, and I think that's kind of the interesting thing about hip-hop music and culture and about the, the some one of the important observations that the movie, uh, the miniseries makes, which is that uh, rap, hip-hop was not black music. It was youth music. And there was a whole generation of, of, of black folks that didn't like it, <laughs> that, that, it didn't, that it didn't connect with when it first uh, blew up in the, in, in the 1980s, you know, who, who, who didn't see it as real music, who, who thought that it reinforced negative stereotypes, who didn't think that, that quote-unquote, white America was ready to embrace a street culture or urban culture the way that hip-hop was translating it to mainstream America. Of course, all of those people, regardless of their color, were wrong. You know, it was, generational, it was a generation line in the sand, and, and it was... It was it was not black culture or black music. It was youth culture and youth music, and it spoke to now multiple generations of Americans. And I think that's the really compelling point about it is that, like, I look back in my childhood. And we talked about this when we discussed tanning. I look back in my childhood, a, a white middle class Jewish kid growing up in North Miami Beach, and what did I watch on? 
uh, what I listen to. I listen to Run DMC and Beastie Boys cassette tapes. Um, I I list, I uh, I watched on TV uh, Fresh Prince in Living Color, Two Two Seven, The Cosby mm-hmm. Show. Amen. What the hell am I watching? Amen. For I liked it. I, was, you know, I, I, I liked it. I just I watched it. You know, a, a different right. world. Um, you mm-hmm. know, I realized that like, uh, you know, uh, my Johnny Carson was Arsenio. That's who I watched. My Saturday Night Live was in Living Color. That was the sketch comedy that I watched in in my youth. And and I was a movie buff. So you watch Die Hard. And you got, you know, Christmas and Hollis. I think you run DMC songs and, you know, playing in the limo, you know, mm-hmm. at the start. So, like, there's all – and then, of course, Public Enemy in Do the Right Thing. So here I am, a kid, watching this incredible movie, and obviously the soundtrack makes, in, you know, a very profound uh, uh, mark. And, and so, like, I was suddenly interested in, in hip-hop music almost by, almost by default because it, it, it was such a, a cultural force. And more importantly, a lot of it was very good. It was good music. That was the other. That was the other thing. Once, once we got beyond uh, Vanilla Ice and Snow and <laughs> some of that crap, um, you know, it, it was uh, uh, it, it was it was genuinely uh, good music. Mm. One more before I, before I move on, and, and, and I'll give you this stat: when I when I when I saw the first episode, I, I guarantee you that when. When the Beastie Boys song came on, I was like, I kept hearing it, and then I'm like, you know, what's that song? And then it was the Brass Monkey came on, and my brother was watching. And he was like, wow, I haven't heard Brass Monkey in like years. I'm like, like I, then I was like, who who is that? He said Beastie Boys, and I swear to you, Billy, when the thing was over, I was like on Spotify, I was on iTunes, <laughs> downloading License to Ill, and I was. You know, bumping it in my iPod the next couple of days, just brass monkey because like I probably heard it, but I was young. But now I'm like, you know, I heard it, but I haven't heard it in such a long time. And now, even I, me and him were was in Florida uh, back in August. I forgot where we went to, and brass monkey came on. And I was like, man, <laughs> yo, excuse my language. I'm like that. That shit is dope. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that whole record, I mean, that's sort of the genius of Rick Rubin, who we also got to interview yeah. uh, in in, uh, in a Tanny of America. Uh, he just and, and he did that time and again and through multiple decades, where he would do a beat or he would do a song, and you go, "Oh shit, that's amazing!" You know, like where yeah. where you would realize that it was genuinely good music, and definitely the beats in those days were stripped down. That was kind of the style of the yeah. thing. But Definitely. like, but but it's genuinely good music. Like, yeah, it was a bunch of crazy white Jewish kids screaming and yelling and 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 whatever. And it was part music, but musically and technically and in terms of production, there was a lot of skill involved in that. And they were they were doing things that hadn't really been uh, uh, been explored in music before. And and it was good. It just it was just good. Mm-hmm. Billy Corbin joining us. You can follow Billy on Twitter at Billy Corbin, B-I-L-L-Y-C-O-R-B-E-N. All right. The U Part 2 comes out Saturday, December 13th, 2014. Now, whose idea was was that to say, you know what, let's have the U come out on 12, 13, 14, or was this like a natural thing to do? Well, let me tell you the bummer of it. The bummer <laughs> of it is that there was like a thousand weddings on that day. Because women really? decided that it was like good luck to get married on 12, 13, 14, because how often does that happen? You know, so exactly. like, like, like I got a lot of friends who are like, oh, I can't wait. I'm going to DVR it. I'll be at a wedding. I'm like, are you kidding? Like, it's, I've heard that like a bunch, that's like a dangerous drinking game. Everybody, someone, every time someone tells you they're going to a wedding on 12, 13, 14, do a shot. You'll be unconscious in like two minutes. It's ridiculous. So, but the upside is it's after the Heisman Trophy presentation, which is one of right. if not the best time slots for 30 for 30. And the U Part 1 premiered in 2009 right after the Heisman Trophy presentation. So, the, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, the folks exactly. at ESPN thought what better way to – celebrate the fifth birthday, so to speak, of the U Part 1 than premiering the U Part 2 in that same uh, time slot. And that time slot 
has been incredibly influential. It's had a bunch of the, the highest rated 30 for 30s, including the U, uh, Pony Excess, have premiered in that, in that time slot. So, you know, we've got with the U Part 1 and Broke, we have two of the top five highest rated 30 for 30s, and we're going, we're going for three. Uh, now is what, what we're going for. This is the first 30 for 30 sequel, and, and that time slot, I think, really helped put the whole 30 for 30 series uh, on the map because that was the first one, the U Part 1, that really, I think, moved the needle, and people really noticed the series. They started watching the previous four or five that had already premiered, uh, and then they, everybody was kind of all caught up and excited when the second round for thir- of 30 for 30s premiered in the spring of 2010, and the rest has literally been, been history. I think it's been a, a game-changing uh, a series, uh, both for cable television, for documentary filmmakers. I mean, you're, you started to see, and you're continuing to see, a proliferation of, real, of quality uh, feature documentary programming all over cable. You know, not just reality crap, but people, you know, CNN Films and Nat Geo and Discovery and all these, these networks are kind of getting in on the act, and 30 for 30 uh, paved the way for, for all that kind of really good work. Okay, so let let me start with this. Knowing how great part one was to you, um, was there any any pressure going into part two? Like, you know what, part one was so great and it had great reviews and highest rated uh, uh, film on ESPN. We got to come stronger um, than before. Was there any pressure at all? Well, you, you forget, we made Cocaine Cowboys 2 hustling with the godmother. So we, we, don't, we don't feel any pressure about making crappy sequels to our work. Um, yeah. <laughs> in fact, that was, my, that was the original title. That was the original title we suggested to ESPN was The You Part 2, Hustling with the Godmother, but they didn't go, they didn't go for that. Um, but, uh, oh, the other one was The You Part 2, Coker Cowboys. That was the other, that was the other one we, uh, we thought of. But because um, of Coach Larry Coker, who, uh, who led them – to their 2001 national championship, the fifth. Spoiler alert, by the way, in the sequel they win a, a fifth national championship. Uh, in fact, they almost win a, a sixth and a seventh uh, as well. But we'll we'll save that for the movie. Um, I, the answer is no and yes. I say no because at first we didn't feel any pressure when we when we pitched the first the U. It was called Hurricane Season. This is back okay. in the late aughts. The late uh, yeah, the, it's like we pitched it in maybe 2007, maybe around there. Uh, to ESPN Films. They loved it. They picked it up. This is before 30 for 30 ever existed. Uh, so it's called Hurricane Season. We start work on it, and almost a year in, we're, 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 we're editing, and they tell us uh, we're about to introduce this new initiative that's called 30 for 30. We're announcing our first, like, six movies in the series, and we're going to put the U in there, which seems to make sense because 30 for 30 was originally conceived uh, to be 30 documentaries uh, by 30 different filmmakers uh, on, on events from the, the previous 30 years in sports because ESPN was celebrating its 30th anniversary. Um, right. So it first went up on the bird on cable in, in 79. The U really starts in 79 when Howard Schnellenberger comes in as the head football coach of the Hurricanes. And so it just made sense to them that the U would join that that series, and we were already working on it. So we, nobody knew what it was. They eventually changed the name uh, from Hurricane Season to the U, uh, which I think was a great move, um, obviously. And, uh, and so we had conceived it, though, this is what I was getting at, uh, to include all five national championships. We realized very quickly, after we interviewed a bunch of incredible athletes from that 2001 team, Jeremy Shockey, Jonathan Vilma, Santana Moss, Willis McGahey, all these first-round draft picks, uh, you know, we realized, oh, wait, um, we're probably not going to get that far because it's like it really was turning into a team of the 80s kind of story. And so the 2001 story was this whole other decade. It was a whole different cast of characters, a whole different uh, 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 head coach, a whole new era, 
it was very different. It was after this, this NCAA investigation and these really devastating sanctions. So there was no way to tell all that in the first movie. So very early in the process, production, we, we realized we weren't going to get that far. And from that day forward, we've always wanted to do a sequel uh, to, tell, to tell the rest of the story. So the question just became, is there enough material to do like a two-hour feature doc? We always believed it, but it wasn't really until late last year, early this year, that ESPN, because we've been pitching it to ESPN since 2009. We've been saying, let's do right. a sequel to the U. Let's do a sequel to the U. And at first, they just didn't see it. And then when the Nevin Shapiro story broke, and you realize, wow, you kind of bookend this story with mm. NCAA investigations and NCAA sanctions. First, you have the... Uh, the investigation into the pay-for-play scandal that involved Uncle Luke, uh, also the Pell Grant scandal where you had a, an academic advisor working in the athletic department who was helping student-athletes from football and eight other sports to defraud the federal government so that he could in part finance his cocaine habit. It doesn't get much more Miami than that, by the way. <laughs> so, yeah, basically. Um, yeah. And then, of course, there was the, the drug test scandal. You had Warren Sapp, who tested positive uh, reportedly seven times, six for marijuana, one for cocaine, uh, and, and it was alleged that the athletic department uh, was covering up those results. Um, so ultimately, they, they had those sanctions. And then, of course, you flash forward uh, to just recent years, where you have not one, not two, but three different Ponzi schemers with ties to the university, uh, including most famously uh, Nevin Shapiro, who was a, a booster of the school and got his tentacles into the athletic department so that he could uh, you know, hang out with these student-athletes uh, and, of course, uh, nearly brought down the, uh, the football program by, by taking them out to dinner uh, and strip clubs and things, which is, uh, which is odd. If you live in Miami... That's not exactly a scandal. That's more like a Tuesday for us. Um, you know, going out on a boat or going to a strip club or going to dinner on South Beach is not exactly a, a, a big deal. But the rest of the country, you know, were clutching their pearls and seemed really shocked and appalled that student athletes would be doing this. But, like, I mean, you look at the Facebook pictures of any University of Miami student, pretty typical uh, activities uh, and, and behavior. Let me ask you this: Do you do you feel that the U projects that you that you've done um, seem to be a little easier because it, it, it's more close to home? And, and I mean, I know you've done a plethora amount of projects, but do you feel when it comes to the U, it's more easy? It's close to home. It's emotional. You're being a Florida native and, and a member of the U. And it, it's something you live through and you see up close and personal every day, as opposed to you doing broke or tanning or something like that. It, does these projects become easier for you? Well, a couple things on that. And first, I sort of didn't answer your last question because it was about the, the pressure we feel. But really, we didn't feel – I feel the pressure now. I didn't feel it at the beginning. I feel it now because now we're getting a little bit closer to the premiere. We're trying to finish it, and you really want to deliver, you know. So, uh, so I'm definitely starting to feel pressure that I didn't feel going into – on the front end of this thing, um, now starting to feel it a little bit, a little bit more, especially when like guys like you bring it up. Thanks a lot. Uh, but, <laughs> um, so now I'm feeling it. When you ask me if I'm feeling pressure, it's like, why should I? It's like, so now I am. Dude, thanks. But like, uh, but, but, but y y the answer is to your, to your, the question you just asked is yes. Uh, because, uh, it's a lot of fun and, and, and it's a lot of fun. Yes. Because we're local and because we grew up, uh, in this in this mythology, um, Cocaine Cowboys, uh, the U, Square Grouper, the Godfathers of Ganja, Collision Course—these are all stories from our childhood, uh, in one way or another. And um, this is a little bit closer because I was at the University of Miami as a freshman in 1996, uh, right at the beginning of this era, which was not those weren't the best years. Obviously, it got better a few years later, uh, mm -hmm. but, but 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 this is a little bit more my less my childhood, more my era uh, coming of age as a college kid at the University uh, of Miami. But most importantly, and I think any, any filmmaker who's ever, uh, who's ever gotten to explore this genre will tell you that m making a sports movie is like cheating. It's one of the easiest things 
to do from a storytelling perspective. There's still all the complicated technical things, especially in a documentary that you have to deal with that we're dealing with now. But just from a storytelling standpoint, it's one of the easiest stories to tell because all sports are inherent, I should say, to all sports are the essential ingredients for good drama. You've got conflict. You've got one side that wants something from the other that they can't get. They have to overcome obstacles and adversity. Uh, you know, all the, all the good stuff in drama is all, already exists in the sports themselves. So when you tell a sports story, and if you think about this, all the great sports movies, but think about the bad sports movies. Even like the, 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 the mediocre sports movies, if you're just chilling at home, flipping through the channels, and you come across like, you know, for love of the game with Kevin Costner, not one of his better baseball, you know, classics like Bull Durham or Field of Dreams, but like, so let's take like a middling, you know, like a mediocre one. It's still pretty fun to watch, you know, like just to kind of chill. You still get chills at the end and you kind of, you know, get that, get that feeling in your throat when he, when he pitches that no hitter, spoiler alert, sorry. Um, I uh, keep, there I you keep, go. <laughs> I, I can tell him spoilers and then say spoiler alert. But this is like an old, this movie's like ten years old, so if you haven't seen it already, whatever. But like, uh-huh. but anyway, you still you know the roar of the crowd, you still get chills. So even like a not great sports movie or not good sports movie, it's still pretty entertaining. It's still pretty fun to watch. It's still pretty moving because you have all of these elements in sports that just work for drama, just work for storytelling. You know, so. It's it's just like it's more fun because it's more fun because and, and of course they have a built-in audience you know there's a very passionate fan base for the genre of sports films because there's a very passionate uh, uh, and significantly sized fan base for sports itself so it's just in general the the experience is always is always uh, uh, a lot of fun. Mm. If you're just joining us, we're joined uh, with Billy Corbin, big-time director, ESPN 30 for 30. The U Part 2, you can hashtag that, The U Part 2 airs December 13, 2014 at 9 p.m. on ESPN following the Heisman presentation. Uh, Billy, I saw the tweet of uh, Dan Levitard being on set with you filming uh, for, for The U Part 2. Who are some of the people you had a chance to sit down and get on film for part two, so the audience, the audience yeah. can get a, a a chance to expect that. Dan was fun. We we did Dan towards the end of the U part one, towards the end of shooting. He he, he comes in and bats clean up. He's always a lot of fun. Very smart. Very knowledgeable. Very funny. Um, mm. Great energy. Uh, now we have to integrate him into the uh, into the edit. Um, but we had, I mean, come on, uh, DJ Williams. Uh, we had Bryant McKinney, Entrell Roll, Santana Moss, Jonathan Vilma, Jeremy Shockey, uh, Brett Romberg, Mike Rumpf, um, <laughs> who else? Um, Butch Davis. Uh, we had Ed Reed. We had Greg Olson, Ken Dorsey, Damian Lewis, Clinton Portis. Uh, the list is ridiculous, and you can go on forever you have a single class the 2001 championship uh miami hurricanes football team had uh 17 first round draft picks from that one roster a total of 38 players that went on to be drafted and play professionally i mean and that's a preposterous (laughs) like ridiculous wow. number of, of players. I mean, that was basically an NFL team. I always say, like, not only is the 2001 Hurricanes team the greatest college football team of all time, it might be one of the greatest NFL teams <laughs> of all time. And you, you, go, you look at these careers, too. I mean, Ed Reed, uh, Ray Lewis was a little bit earlier, uh, but, but Santana Moss is starting, what, his 13th season or something ridiculous? Like that, and he's a little guy too, you know. And, and but these players were so well conditioned; they were so, they were such quality men and such quality players 
Uh, Shockey played, you know, for years. And, I mean, the average career is 13.3 years in the NFL. But some of these guys, when Brian McKinney is still playing, Jonathan Gilman just just only recently retired, uh, as did uh, D.J. Williams, I think, is still playing. I mean, it's just, uh, it's crazy. (laughs) I mean, the the careers that these guys went on to have are just, uh, are just remarkable. Uh, Sidebar, would it have been, Difficult whether for part one or part two to to get the rock down and get a chance to speak with him, or did you try it and he couldn't make it, or did you even yeah, attempt? We did. We tried. He was promoting uh, the Hercules movie this summer all over the world okay. when it premiered. Uh, he's actually he lives down in South Florida full time. You know when he's not traveling for work, and he's also been shooting a reality show down here. He's been shooting an HBO series called Ballers, which was inspired uh, in my heart by Broke. By broke because it's about like former athletes, um, okay. you know, some of whom some of whom have fallen on hard times as they do, um, and so it, for 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 us and for him it was just a scheduling, a scheduling thing. Unfortunately, he's a he's a busy guy, and 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 arguably I, I think uh, as far as famous former Canes go, he's probably uh, right up there with uh, with with Ray Lewis uh, uh, and and Ed Reed and Warren mm-hmm. Sapp. I got to give credit to. To Warren Sapp, I mean, especially, I mean, you gotta, gotta have a lot of respect for a guy who could get away with failing seven drug tests in college. <laughs> the, um, the documentary airs in about two months. Um, how far are we from part two being 100% complete, Billy? Seriously, I didn't feel the pressure until this interview. I want to tell you the truth right now. Well, I, I apologize. <laughs> now, now you're just you're just getting under my skin this whole night, dude. So now all of a sudden, like I feel like I gotta say, yo. By the way, if this movie is, if we don't finish this movie in time, or if we finish this movie like 45 minutes late, later than 9 p.m., it's because of this interview. I'm telling you yeah, right you, now, that's what's gonna happen. You're, you're gonna, gonna blame nine, me, man. Nine, it's going to be 9.45 p.m. on 12, 13, 14, and you're going to be looking at your watch going like, damn, where the hell is this movie? They're, they're just like rerunning Center now after the Heisman, and Billy said this movie's going to be on. It's going to be because of this phone call is what, is what it's going to be. But, but we're, we're, pretty, we're, pretty, we're doing pretty well. I anticipate that we'll need every single one of the days that we have between now and then to get it done. You know, a lot of people are very excited about it because it's, uh, the 2001 season because it's the U part two because it's the first 30 for 30 sequel. A lot of people want to have you know advanced screenings and premieres and mm-hmm. and we're not committing we're not committing to any of that right now. We're just focusing on on getting it done. I just came from the composer's uh, honor roll uh, who did the music for the the U part one did incredible work. They did Cocaine Cowboys two. They scored Broke. They scored Tanning of America, which was incredible. I just came uh, uh, from their uh, their studio in Little Haiti down here in Miami, and they the score on this one is incredible. It's like it's just like it, it gives you chills, and it and it's fun, and it's emotional, and there's a lot of great action. So the music is great. We are uh, like we did with the U Part One. We're doing uh, another opening credits song and sequence. It's another hip hop. Uh, song. I cannot tell you who the artist is yet. I'm going to try to keep it on the download between ne- you know, until the premiere, uh, but we're supposed to record that uh, in the next two weeks, uh, which okay. will be a lot of fun. The, the beat is sick, um, and we and we have uh, definitely, like we did with the first one, we're kind of we're, we're kind of bringing it to the era uh, in terms of the artist and in terms of the producers. We're bringing it into the era that this story takes place in, like we did with Uncle Luke. And Uncle Luke, Luke did the theme song to the first one. We're try- we, we, we found just the right artists to perform this one where you'll be like, oh, right, we are in Miami, and the, you know, it's like the late 90s, the early zeros. It'll put you right in, that, right in that mood and that time and place. But I can't tell you who yet. Um, and, uh, and so we're, we're working every single, every single day, seven days a week. Morning, day, and night. David Sipkin, our, our producer and editor, is standing right here. Uh, no, he's not standing. I'm standing. He's sitting right here uh, working on the movie as we speak. Mm-hmm. How often do you watch the other ESPN documentary films? And, and if so, which ones are you a fan of? Not as much as I should and not as much as I'd like to. Um, the two Escobars, I think it goes without saying, 
if you have a list of of thirty for thirties that you know you wish you made, uh, that was that's certainly that's certainly one of them. Uh, I just missed the the one uh, the the premiere that was last week. It was uh, the the mob one, the one with um, yeah, I missed that one. That Ray, yeah, that Ray Liotta narrated uh, with Henry Hill fixing the game. Uh, that sounded just fantastic, uh, uh, and I heard such great things about it, uh, both from our, our friends at ESPN Films and, and of course, the, the social media and critical response to it. That's one that sounded really like, uh, uh, I mean, when you're combining, like, sports and uh, cocaine cowboys kind of stuff, like, that's, that's definitely my, my bag. My brother and I, last night, we saw the, um, the day the series stood still, and um, and, and just tying it, tying to what you do, I, I think it's great. This whole series, and um, it, it really gives fans, young or old, a, a, a perspective of some stories that have happened the past thirty years that either they forgot about or don't really know too much about. For example, when my brother saw last night, two things stood out. He was like, "Well, I never knew the A's and the Giants played in the '89 World Series." And, and one, he's older than me, and then two. He was like, well, I knew about the earthquake. Or I kind of knew something about the earthquake, but I didn't know it was that serious to to the magnitude it was displayed last night. So something like that and him now being more educated on what's going on. With it. Last night wasn't more It wasn't more about the sports. It was more about, like, real life. And, and to him, it was like, wow, man, like, you know, two things that I didn't know, and, and now I know exactly what happened. And, Going to what you do with with broke and, and and the you and I think every fan out there should know the fact that it what you guys do is great and amazing and I know people tell you that all the time or may not tell you that enough but someone like me who's a big sports fan a big documentary guy I like learning new stuff so whatever you guys do and, and portray and put out there for the fans I, I think you guys do a great job man for real well thank you and and I think you you you've actually identified the most important. Uh, element to all of this, uh, w- which I should have mentioned earlier, but I'm glad you did, which is that the best sports movies are the ones that are less about sports or not about sports. So when you're doing a, a, a documentary about a World Series, obviously there's going to be baseball in it. You can't avoid it, right? But, right. but when, you, when you make it about something more, which I think is where the U uh, was very effective at, I think it's where Cocaine Cowboys was very successful at and really struck a chord. You know, Cooking Cowboys, I, we, we describe it as like micro, macro. So the micro is the individual stories. Okay, it's about these baseball teams. It's about a college football team. It's about a drug smuggler. It's about a hitman. It's, that's the, the, you know, the, the micro. But the macro is when you zoom out, what's it really about? You know, what else is the takeaway from it that's not just sports or drugs or, uh, you know, murder uh, or smuggling what else is it about? And like with Cocaine Cowboys, it's, yes, I call it a, a mosaic. You know, we have a bunch of little tiles that you mm. paint that form like a, a bigger picture. So each of the people that we interview and the small stories and anecdotes in their lives, those are different tiles in the mosaic. So you've got like John Roberts, the, the wholesaler, Mickey Monday, the smuggler, Rivi, Jorge Riviala, the hitman. You've got the, the cops from Sentac. 26, the Untouchables type organization. You've got the DEA, you've got the reporter, you've got the lawyer, you've got, you know, and then you zoom out and they all kind of form their stories and their lives. These people form the modern city of Miami, which was built on, on drug money, which was built on narco dollars, built on a foundation of uh, the, the revenue generated by drug smuggling in that era of Miami. And it's kind of similar to the, the U where you say, yes, it's about this college football team, but how the team was, uh, was recruited from the inner cities of South Florida that made the team more of the face of and the team of Miami um, playing in the Orange Bowl close to home, bringing their friends and family and fans who watched them in high school football, watched them in peewee football, a community that was being torn apart uh, by these drug wars by race riots, uh, by uh, 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 police uh, shootings of, of unarmed uh, uh, and beating to death of, of unarmed uh, African-American men and, and, and just the scandal that was surrounding this very dangerous uh, uh, place. 
and now we have this team to rally around. And, and when they were successful, the whole town felt united behind this this group. And, and regardless of what color you were, you were a hurricane. You bled orange and green. And it, 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 it meant something more to this community in that in that time, kind of, you know, and, and kind of like, you know, the 86 Mets in New York, you know, like it was the, it was the renegade team in the renegade town. And it was something for a, a, a city that was being ripped apart to hold it together and to rally around and to all be able to get behind and relate to. It's like, you know, we're, you suddenly felt like everybody's a New Yorker because uh, Miami's a lot like that. I always say, um, uh, Miami is people have this misconception that we're a, a melting pot, you know, with all these different cultures mixed together. We're not. Uh, we're more akin to a TV dinner where sometimes the peas fall over into the mashed potatoes, you know, over that little wall. You know, we're we're very Miami-Dade County is way spread out. We've got about the population of New York. But, but you guys are all squeezed together, you know? <laughs> like, we, yeah, man. we're all, we're all, <laughs> a lot we're of people all spread up. <laughs> out. Yeah, but, but you guys still have your own neighborhoods, obviously. But, like, but, but yeah. we, we're, we're really spread out. We're spread out everywhere. Like, we have a lot of a lot of square miles and like, so you've got the Jewish neighborhoods, you've got the Cuban neighborhoods everywhere. You've got the Haitian neighborhood, you've got the African-American uh, neighborhoods. But like, we're, we're all kind of, we, we find a way to like, it's like self-segregation is what it is. And so, mm-hmm. and so it's, it, it's not easy to, to come together as Miamians, just like it's not easy to come together uh, as New Yorkers. So it's like sports is one of those common denominators that help, especially when your team is winning, that help bring, although New Yorkers, you guys love it when your team suck too. You guys will give shit to anybody. Like, uh, that, oh, yeah. <laughs> like absolutely. That was my, oh man. <laughs> I took my girl, my girlfriend at the time took me to my first ever Knicks game, live Knicks game when Isaiah was the coach. So, oh, boy. oh man, that's an experience <laughs> I will never forget. Uh, I had been to MSG before, but never for a Knicks game in person. So uh, first thing, you know, we walk up and they're like burning him an effigy outside. You know, there's like protesters fire Isaiah, you know, like screaming and, and uh, outside, out front. So we go inside and what a turnout. I mean, this team sucked. And there was like a ridiculous turn. A lot of people who paid a lot of money. She bought secondhand nosebleeds, and those were expensive, you know, at the garden. And so we're, I'm watching this game, and the team comes out, and here's all these fans in Knicks jerseys, season ticket holders. They paid a shit ton of money to be there to boo their own team. I'm like, that <laughs> is crazy. And then they would do something really terrible, which, you know, they did a lot. And then the whole the whole arena, fire Isaiah, fire Isaiah. I'm like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. Like, I, I was just the people would go through the trouble. And in Miami, we just don't give a shit. You're not winning. We're just like, peace out. You know, we have we have no obligation. No, we have no obligation to support a business that we're not satisfied with the product that they produce. And we got tons of other stuff to do. And it's beautiful outside, and screw this. You know, we just don't show. But like, uh-huh. but New York, New York fans, man, y'all are crazy. Yeah, we just don't give a shit. Plain and simple. You can be great one day, one week, and then you can just fade out and fizzle out the next week. And I think that's the beauty of being a, a New York fan, regardless of sports. Um, like, we'll let you know. We'll let you know what you're doing great, and yeah, but when you start fucking up, we're going to let you know, too. Now with the Brooklyn involved, now with the Knicks, and you have the Jets and Giants and even Ranger oh. games, it's like, hey, man, you go, like you said, you pay a $150 ticket to go ahead and boo because that's just how New York is all. We say, you know, <laughs> we're going to let you know. I don't if, understand. If, if you ain't doing shit, we're going to let you know. I don't understand why anybody goes to a Jets game. Like, I have no, like, why would anybody waste the time, the money, go through the aggravation? I mean, I watched my, I watched my, my grandfather and my father. I think this is how I, I, I became more realistic about sports in my youth, how I was able to kind of emotionally disconnect. Because I watched my father and my grandfather get devastated watching the Miami Dolphins. You know, like, they just got devastated. You realize the 72 Dolphins, I mean, that shit was before I was born. You know? right. <laughs> so so, so I, you now have 
multiple generations of Miamians who have no relationship or association whatsoever with the Miami Dolphins as a winning team, or really with the organization at all. They just don't connect at all. People connect with the Miami Heat. They're in downtown Miami, right in the middle of town, right in the middle of the action. Uh, of course, the They've won in modern history many times, so kids, uh, you know, want to associate themselves with it. The Dolphins are just like, like they feel like it's like the Jets. You know, you're just like, come on, really? Like, how? And it's it's devastating. And I watch my father and my grandfather. Like, I watch them scrape years off the end of their lives, getting all emotionally invested in watching a bad football team. And, and I was like, okay, I don't want to be those guys. And I don't want to be, I don't want to, when it comes to sports, I didn't want to be as emotionally invested uh, as they are. And, you know, to me, it's tougher too. Like I like college football. The NFL is much tougher for me to get into. Like, yeah, I like the players I like, but why do you like the team? Just because it has the name of your city on it? You know, like what, that doesn't, you right. know, like it, believe me, if that owner could make more money by up and moving his business someplace else, he don't give a shit about you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, like, so what do yeah. you, I, I call, you probably, if you read my Twitter feed, you probably heard me talk about, like, the fallacy of the, of the true fan. Because, like, listen, wh- what about, you're not, you know, when people go, oh, you're, you're, you're Miami fans, you're not real fans, you're not, and I say you have no obligation, <laughs> you have yep. no obligation to support any business any business that you are not satisfied with the product that they provide. I mean any business. And what's a football team, an NFL team? It's a, it's a billionaire's toy. That's all. The same thing with the NBA. It's a billionaire's toy. Okay, and why? What kind of, what kind of uh, a, a blind faith and dedication do you owe them? These are the same people, by the way, that would go right on Yelp if they had a bad meal for 50, 60, 70 bucks, they go right on Yelp and they'd write a crappy review and try to ruin some small business person's life. You know what I mean? Like you go to some restaurant, you have a bad experience, you go right on the internet, you're going to rip them. I say, wait a second, what kind of Miami fan are you? That's the Miami restaurant. That's a local, that's a local business owner. You know, that's not Stephen Ross billionaire from New York or whatever. You know what I like? That's, that's a that's a business that that's a local guy, you know, and you're going mm-hmm. to destroy their but but yet everybody has this really weird, almost religious kind of affiliation, sports fans do, with their teams that I just I got over that in my childhood watching my dad and, and grandpa I mean, listen, even Hootie wrote a song about it, okay? I'm such a baby, even the dolphins make me cry. Come on now. Come on. <laughs> You know what's so funny? Before I let you go, I I currently have I currently have a bet with a friend of mine. He he's from Miami. He's a big Dolphins fan, and his name will remain nameless. But um, <laughs> he thinks, and I don't know why. Like I said, I don't watch the Dolphins. He does. He thinks they're going ten and six. And before you burst out laughing, I said, "Listen, can you think realistically now? I know you're a fan." But Dolphins going ten and six, you're talking like ten and six, win your division, that's not happening. He said, Yo, okay, you know what? I give you I give you nine and seven. And I said, Man, yo, let me see the schedule real quick. And I and I pinpoint I say the most you'll get seven, eight wins and no playoffs. He's saying nine and seven playoffs. I'm saying seven, eight wins, no playoffs. What do you think? <sighs> You know, I hate to play this game. I really do. <laughs> the bottom line is, you know, despite despite all the shit uh, I was just talking, you know, I, I'm always rooting for the home team. You know, I I, yeah. I, I, I want the best. I know a bunch of those guys. Some of them personally, uh, and they're and they're and they're really good guys, and they deserve. Mm. You know, they're winners individually. You know, they deserve to be on a on a winning yeah. team. And I watched. Oh man. I watched the end of that that Green Bay game, right? Oh, oh man! man. <laughs> and and it's difficult to not feel a little bit bad for them, you know. I and 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 I and then Lamar Miller, you know, someone tosses him the ball during that ridiculous last play, that last gasp of life, and you know, Lamar Miller is a, a hurricane, you know. So like I'm like I like I held my breath and I just realized and I tweeted because I was like kind of caught up in that moment in exactly the kind of way that I told you I don't want to be or like to be, but I got mm. caught up in that moment 
because of, because of the player, not just because of the team. And I was like, man, if, if this guy, you know, if this guy would take it to the house, I would probably just sit here by myself. I'd slide off my couch and just sob tears of joy. You know, I would just probably just like, I would just, I would just in exactly the same way I just said, I didn't want to emulate my dad and my grandpa who were great men who I hope to be exact everything like except for their insane irrational sports fandom in that moment i realized oh shit i'm 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 that like the dolphins almost made me cry like it it, i i just saw it on sunday and i i saw it in myself and i was like damn i'm a sucker man (laughs) you know know, i'm rooting for them i'm rooting for them but guess what you know it's the old story you know fool me once shame on you fool me twice shame on me Fool me for 40 years, shame on who, right? I mean, come on. You know, like, you, it's hope for the best, expect the worst every year. And what's so funny, that was the third time I picked Miami to win again this year, and they <laughs> lost. And I'm like, you know hey, what? You were close. I'm not picking you, you guys close. again, man. <laughs> you were close. You were so close. I, I was close. I'm like, and my brother picked Green Bay, and it's like, I'm like, yeah, Miami got this, and you know, Rogers goes all the way down there. Two seconds left. Dude, I'm like, they got marinoed. Rogers marinoed them. <laughs> he got. They got marinoed. The fake spike. And I was did. like, I was, I'm like, if the Dolphins could get marinoed, could they pull off a hail flutie? Like that's what I was just like, what's gonna happen in this game? But listen, by the way, you got to give them credit. It was a great football game. I, I don't even when I'm, I'm rooting, even when I'm rooting for the home team, I don't like a route. You know, when, like, a team wins, you know, 47-0, that's not really entertaining football necessarily, you know, because it, it wasn't a good matchup. It wasn't a good, uh, a good pairing of, of, of teams, you know. So, like, I, I like to see an exciting football game, and that was a damn exciting football game to the, to the last second. That's just good television. Billy, two quick things um, real quick. Your thoughts on LeBron leaving Miami, going to Cleveland? What was it feeling like down there? Were you were you shocked? Were they shocked, surprised? Were they even happy he left? Or more like, all right, fine, LeBron left, but you know we're all going to move on here. Well, first thing I'll say is I look at it at, first and foremost as the perspective of a storyteller, a filmmaker. It's what I do by trade. So I always think about these things as, as you know, what's the movie like? You know, what's the 30 for 30 uh, like? And I, I've been saying since he got here, and I think anybody with any real sense of, uh, of him and his story and, and his people knew that this guy's career, his story, uh, was going to end in Cleveland. I don't think uh-huh. there was any doubt in any reasonable, objective person's mind about that. For me, it was just a question. I think for him, too, it was just a question of when. So uh, did it ha- even he said it happened sooner than I think he even thought uh, it was going to. Um, but I think that was always oh, act three for him. You know, the end of his story as a professional athlete was always going to end. It was not just destined that was always part of the plan. And again, any logical, reasonable, objective, rational person would have understood that the moment he came here, that eventually he was going to go back. But we just didn't know when. I always thought as long as he wanted to keep winning, he would stay here. Uh, and, and then it was um, almost as easy, but not quite as easy as he thought it was. And then he decided that, you know, it's time for that. It's time to start my last chapter a little bit earlier now. And I mean, I say his last chapter as a professional athlete, obviously he's going to have a long and, and phenomenally successful life and many careers after uh, the NBA, but just the sort of third act of him as an NBA player, it was always going to happen. There was two schools of thought uh, in, in, in South Florida, neither of them particularly rational, but you can't really expect rational or nuanced thought from sports fans they're crazy. I mean, that's why the fan is short for fanatic. Fanatic basically means a crazy person. Uh, you know, and, and, and an insanely, irrationally devoted individual. That's what a fan oh. is. That's what a fanatic is. So the, oh, pardon me. So the, the two schools of thought were, screw this guy. He betrayed us. He has no loyalty. He has no respect. He has stupid. Uh, the other school of thought was, uh, 
thank you, LeBron, so much for giving us these wonderful years and for winning us these champion, helping us win these championships. And best of luck, and thanks for the stupid. All of these people think. All of these people think it has something to do with them. It has right. nothing to do with us. It has nothing. To, this was a decision that one man made for his life and his career and his family. And this is. This has the, he wasn't thinking about any of these tweeting morons, myself included, by the way. Um, <laughs> these, these, these tweeting twits, as I've once been called uh, uh, in the Miami Herald. But he wasn't thinking. It had nothing to do. He didn't come here to do anything for us, to win anything for us. He didn't leave here to screw us or to, or, or to be disrespectful. None of that. It doesn't make any sense. The only thing that happened was one man made a life decision, a career decision. I mean, if you had an opportunity that you thought was better for you and your family, you're not going to sit down and go, what's Twitter going to think of this? <laughs> that's, that's just not, who cares? Like what, but that's, he didn't make the decision to come here for us. He didn't make the decision to leave here for us. I, he, he, he seems like a pretty uh, 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 smart He's certainly a very successful man, both on and off the court. I, I, I wish him the very best. It was a lot of fun while he was here. I don't know why anybody would take it so personally one way or the other, you know, positively or negatively. It had nothing to do with, with us. I'd like Everybody needs to just get over themselves with the LeBron stuff right. and, 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 and wish him well in, in anything and everything he does. Exactly. <clears throat> one last point, uh, Billy. Your Twitter timeline, your you know everything you post up, I look at it, and majority of the time I laugh at it because you point out stuff that goes down in Miami, and it's like, like wow, like what what in the world is going on? Like what is going down um, over there? And the last two things you you posted up, well not, not the very last two, but th- that I pointed out and see was like the college football game that you had the other day, and now recently. <laughs> A, a, a Florida Panthers home game, and I look at the pictures, and I'm like, wow. And you have to point out, like, no life stadium, and like, really, nobody was at these games, and like, you know more than I do. I have no idea what's going on down there. It looked like nobody was even in the building in the whole entire stadium. It, it can't be that hot down in Miami where you can't show up to a game. I mean, it, it's a fascinating look for, I guess, the wrong reasons. You're in Florida. Can you explain why those two games had, like, such low attendance? You know, it's funny. So I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Black Sunday. Um, It's this great movie from 1977 based on a book, actually, um, uh, by by Thomas Harris, who wrote Silence of the Lambs and all the Hannibal Lecter stuff. And he lives down here in Miami, uh, in Miami Beach, in fact. And so he writes this book, and it's about a – a uh, Palestinian terrorist uh, attack uh, at the Super Bowl at the Orange Bowl, um, and 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 this is what the book is about. This is what the movie is about. And they actually shot it at Super Bowl Ten, which was Dallas Cowboys versus the Pittsburgh Steelers. They shot it on the field in the Orange Bowl, all around during the game. And it's a guy. It's this pilot who was recruited by this Palestinian terrorist cell, and they, 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 he, he, he's a Vietnam pi, uh, veteran pilot, very anti-American. He's going to fly the Goodwill blimp, packed with explosives, into the Orange Bowl at a sellout <laughs> Super Bowl crowd, okay? And I keep thinking, and it, it's, I mean, obviously, the terrorism factor isn't, isn't funny, that this Miami would be the last place today that you would ever go as a terrorist to kill a stadium full of people because you kill like 14 people is what would happen at a sports venue in Miami. It's ridiculous. Um, the orange bowl, the orange bowl is gone. RIP orange bowl. Uh, uh-huh. now park, one of the biggest frauds and crimes ever perpetuated on the taxpayers uh, of, of this community. Um, and uh, now we have Sun Life Stadium, which people call Unlife Stadium or No Life Stadium. Uh, and the college foot, it's a terrible venue for college football. It's a very nice stadium. It's a pretty nice NFL stadium 
even though it's, you know, it's almost 30 years old, it's still a really nice, but as a college football stadium, it's not a really good venue for college mm. football. And you have a high noon game against Cincinnati. I mean, who are their cats who are more cats than bears. I'll tell you that right now. This team, <laughs> um, this, this, this team's defense makes the hurricanes defense look good. Okay. That's how bad. And all I kept doing was watching this game looking at the Bearcats logo, getting hungry, because it turns out, I realized their logo looks exactly like the Chick-fil-A logo. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I was getting hungry for that fried chicken sandwich. So anyway, um, high noon, too hot. A lot of people go in tailgate, by the way, and then don't even go into the stadium uh, at a lot of these Hurricanes wow. games. The tailgating scene is, is awesome <laughs> outside, outside the stadium. And then you've got uh, you, you go inside and it's it's deserted. It's just deserted. And the same thing happened. And I, I think it's because people are very disillusioned with the team. Yes, there's the weather issue. There's the high noon games, sun straight overhead. It can be a killer. Um, and then who knows if in the summer, you know, or in, in hurricane season, it can start raining at any at any given moment. So it's hot and it's raining. And it's like it's, there's a lot of good reasons weather-wise to not to not go to a football game. But then there's also a lot of people disillusioned with the team. Same thing with the Florida Panthers. It's like slap shot up there with the Florida Panthers uh, right now. You know, it's just like, and they want another $80 million in public money from the, from Broward County up there. For what? Um, they want, they want to, <laughs> it's ridiculous. And they already built them this arena up there. And, it's just, and, and now you look there and you're like, there's nobody. And I mean, like they, they could, I mean, you could, there'd be no fear. You could, you could snap the puck right into the crowd, and you wouldn't come within within a, you know, within a hundred feet of a single single person in that arena. I mean, it's just you know, I, what can I tell you? I think it's about the product. I think people are dissatisfied with the product in Miami. People want to go where they think they're going to have a good time, where it's cool to go, where there's winning or winners involved or associated uh, with it. Uh, Miami, Miami Dolphins. They've got Live Nightclub. Live is one of the, uh, the highest-grossing, most successful nightclubs in the world. It's at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach, and they opened one in the stadium. Uh, it's, uh, of course, it's, unfortunately, I should say, it's not on for hurricanes for college games, but it's on for those Dolphins games, and it's a lot of fun. They basically put a South Beach nightclub in the Miami Dolphins stadium in, during Miami Dolphins games it's at Sun Life, and i got to tell you, many times it's the best part of the game. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it, it, it's definitely something to learn about how the Miami fans are. Whether it's football, baseball, I mean, I listen. We can do an hour on the Marlins, and I really have no time for that because that's probably even worse. But seeing the Panthers and seeing the Hurricane game with like twelve people there combined, it, it wasn't a good look, though, man. <laughs> An hour? You could do an hour on the Marlins. I have nothing to say. I, I, I didn't say I wanted to. Nothing to say. I didn't say I wanted to about how like, nobody goes to the game. I said I could. I, I, said, I said the I said the, the Florida Panthers are starting to resemble Slapshot. The Marlins have long resembled Major League. That's what the Marlins are like. Mm-hmm. Hey Billy, man, it, it's it's always great talking to you, man. We we even went fit seventeen minutes over, so um, I blame you for that, man. <laughs> okay, so all right, so the first. So the first 45 minutes that were late with the U Part 2 is on you. The next 17 is on me. Exactly, because, you know, you felt I was pressuring you. I, I, man, I'm just trying to keep you on your toes. You know what I'm saying? Just make sure that the next two months when you put that, that documentary out there, just just recall that I was I was on you, man. Oh, wow. You just reminded me it really is in just two months. See, all the <laughs> pressure is coming from you here. All the pressure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me back. <laughs> no problem. Um. Before you go, if you want to tell anybody uh, how, how to, you know, keep in touch with you, follow you, uh, and, you know, just watch your great work, um, you have to platform. Absolutely. To do so. Absolutely. Uh, you can find us at CocaineCowboys.com, of course, uh, on Twitter, at Billy Corbin, B-I-L-L-Y-C-O-R-B-E-N. Billy Corbin, thank you. Appreciate it. Also, don't forget, Saturday, December 13th, at 9 p.m., the U Part 2 on ESPN after the Heisman presentation. Billy, always a pleasure. The next time you come to New York, we got to hang out, man. Definitely. Good night. All right, man. Good night.